Welcome to the Explores. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. Welcome back to our day, or week rather, in the life of a 1920s American gal. So far in this series, we've gotten dressed, shopped, and done some work and stay-at-home business. I think it's about time we put back on our T-strap dancing shoes and headed out to have some fun. Just a heads up, this episode will include a lengthy discussion of dating and some of its amorous consequences, so you might want to preview it before sharing it with any young exploresses. Now, grab your favorite flask, your handsomest bow, and let's hop into the automobile. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout out to some of my patrons. My newest pirate queen, Lisa. My warrior queens, Amanda, Kate, two lovely Alexises, Chelsea, Ika, June, Neve, and Sloan, Samantha, and Sarah. My imperial empresses, Bridget, Faye and Whimsy Soapworks, Katie, Samara, and Teresa. And my lady pharaohs, Kimberly, Sophie, Laura, Kate, Kat, and the magnificent Courtney's. This show just wouldn't be possible without the generous support of all my patrons. For just a few dollars a month, they get each episode early and completely ad-free. Exclusive bonus episodes, discounts on merchandise, full interviews with our guests, and more. To find out all about it, just go to my website, theexplorespodcast.com. While I have you, have you picked up my novel Nightbirds yet? It came out earlier this year, and it's a 1920s tinted fantasy about a world where magic is illegal. But there are girls who will gift it to you with a kiss, for a price. I would love it if you'd get yourself a copy this holiday season. It would make a great present for the Explores fan in your life, and maybe a little gift for yourself. Go on, you know you deserve it. You'll find it wherever good books and audiobooks are sold. For many 1920s ladies, this is an era of financial prosperity. The national wealth is going to double in this decade, and the gross national product will expand by some 40%. More women are working than ever, and Americans in general have more disposable income than they did in our Mother's Day. The landscape is changing for the working class. Employers are starting to offer fairer working hours and more time off, which means many of us have more free time in which to spend our hard-earned dollars. The rise of a consumer culture has us buying more goods, with ad men encouraging us to prioritize our personal pleasure. And to be sure, there are many pleasures to be had. But before we can begin to truly taste their delights, we need to talk about one of our most thrilling pastimes, wild rides in fast cars. The first American gasoline-powered automobile was invented back in the 1890s, but it isn't really until the 1920s that they become affordable. Henry Ford and his assembly line reduced production costs and lowered prices before World War I, to be sure. But it's increasing competition from other companies that fuels further innovation. Our cars have bigger engines now, are easier to drive, and have become much more reliable. If you're looking to buy a two-door closed sedan from Chevrolet in 1927, it will cost you about $594. 
that's about $10,400 today. That means tons of Americans are buying cars now. By the latter half of the 20s, the number of cars on the roads is about 26 million. That's one car for every five Americans. Put another way, for every dishwasher we will purchase in 1929, we will buy 336 cars. Early models could be unreliable and reckless. Their tires fell off, they swerved with little coaxing, and when it rained, all bets were off. In 1924, we see some 23,600 car-related deaths, 700,000 injuries, and more than $1 billion in property damage. Whoops! Many see them as murder machines for unsuspecting pedestrians. And for good reason. Remember that, before cars came around, streets were primarily for walking. In the 19-teens, city streets were seen as a place where men, women, and children could frolic fairly freely. Around horse-drawn carts and trolley cars, of course. It was a free-for-all, so cities start putting in some safety features that will help people share the road with cars. Not that we always take to them. In Kansas City, when they try marking crosswalks with painted lines, one safety manager reported that female pedestrians ignored them. Some even poked at the policemen trying to get passersby to obey them, nudging them aside with their parasols. In the early days of automobiles, there were few rules for drivers. The first law regulating speed was put in place in Connecticut in 1901, 12 miles per hour outside the city and 8 miles per hour inside it. The first traffic light appeared in Detroit back in 1914, though the yellow warning light won't be added until 1920. But this decade sees the car become a staple of our lives, changing how we move and interact and travel. Concrete roads are being adopted nationwide, and the network is spreading across the country rapidly. Our cars don't yet have seatbelts, though, so hold on to your hat. We ladies love our automobiles and the freedom they bring us. When companies realize how much influence we have over the purchase of the family auto, they adjust their sales techniques accordingly. The Fisher Body Corporation sales manual goes so far as to tell their staff to single out the features of your car that have the strongest feminine appeal and explain them to her. If you can convince the woman that your car possesses the qualities which appeal to her most, you'll find that you have a very powerful ally in selling the car to the man. Ads strategically placed in women's magazines speak directly to the ladies as potential drivers, depicting the motor car as the key to personal pleasure and even domestic happiness. As one Ford ad boasts, By owning a Ford car, a woman can, with ease, widen her sphere of interest without extra time or effort. She can accomplish more daily, yet easily keep pace with the usual schedule of domestic pursuits. Another ad reads, Wouldn't you rather be motoring? or doing any one of a hundred things than standing over a hot stove in a hot kitchen. Why, yes, sir. Yes, we would. For us, the automobile means freedom. It allows us to get out from under the controlling eyes of our families, to see more of the world and explore it at our leisure. It allows rural women to escape the isolation of the farm, driving into town to do errands, go shopping, and visit friends. It also enables adventurous single gals to go out on dates <gasps> without a chaperone. Thus, the fast-moving 1920s woman is inextricably linked to the automobile. The flapper, as we learned in an earlier episode, is all about going joyriding. 
which also lets her spend some, shall we say, special alone time with her suitors. Car companies use this fact in their marketing, pushing the idea that a flash car brings all the ladies to the yard. In one ad, two women stand in front of a Buick with a caption that reads, Possession makes the heart beat faster. The automobile changes our courtship practices markedly. Cars are, essentially, hotels on wheels. There were two kinds of girls, one 1920s guy says. Those who rode with you in your automobile at night, and the nice girls who wouldn't. They're places we can neck and pet like no one's watching, because usually no one is. This potentially morally compromising situation is something lots of people seem concerned about. As one magazine writer named Eleanor Wembridge writes, Every evening in the city, gas hawks, or roving young men in automobiles, pick up the young girls as they come out from work and pet them, even in the streets. They have done it outside my window with enthusiasm, which even two large paper bags filled with water and hurled against their windshield by an interested spectator failed to cool. Jealous much, Eleanor? So, we're spending plenty of time in cars as passengers, but are we driving too? You bet your cloche hat we are! Before the war, automobiles were considered masculine machinery. Cars were too difficult, dangerous, and, well, dirty for a woman to drive. Then the war came, and the Red Cross Motor Corps women shut that nonsense down real fast. But the notion that women shouldn't drive persisted into the 1920s. One man observes in a 1925 paper, Women don't seem to be able to make up their minds about turning a corner until they reach it. They are a bit impulsive in their driving, as in everything else. Does this refrain sound familiar? A policeman of the era goes on to complain, They're always looking for a place to park in front of one of the department stores and never think of the road. One feisty woman claps back in an article in the Boston Globe entitled, How Good Are Women Drivers? saying, I rather pride myself on my driving. It is a constant joy to me, and surely anything I do so often and always with such gusto should be done well, and yet get into a traffic jam at any jam and any place, and you'll find some man stretching his neck and remarking it must be a woman. If a car zigzags into fantastic patterns on the roadway, it's a woman. If a car stops abruptly with no signals, it's a woman. Men just love to accuse us ladies of making the roads less safe. An LA Times article from 1923 even accuses women of using their feminine wiles to get out of tickets. She will calmly break half a dozen traffic rules, and then, when the outraged traffic officer stops her, she will look helpless and feminine. And the officer's intention to give her the razzing of a lifetime will just ooze away under her charming penitence. Look, we make about half as much as you do for doing exactly the same work, so we think you owe us one. Plenty of women hop behind the wheel regardless. As one 1921 article puts it, The number of women who are running automobiles these days is legion. Famous women such as Edith Wharton, Gertrude Stein, and Rose Wilder Lane all drive cars, becoming visible symbols of the new, modern, independent woman. And yet these women, and female drivers in general, are still treated as a bit of a novelty. Society still views us primarily as passengers. Plenty of us prove this assumption wrong. In 1921, Catherine Thaxter and Winifred Hawkridge Dixon decide to drive across the country from Boston to see the great American West. 
Along the way, they change multiple tires and fix the faulty ignition. They can change their own oil, thank you. As one man in Montana, who offers them the help of his mule team when their car gets stuck in a muddy roadbed, observes, They ain't helpless. Indeed, many women are so determined not to be helpless that they enroll in driving school. The technical director of one YMCA driving school, H. Clifford Brokaw, writes in 1921, To learn to drive a car is perhaps usually more difficult for the woman than the man. But having once mastered the preliminary step, the normal curiosity of the woman leads her to find out everything she possibly can about the machine. And they make better students. As one lady driving people in 1925 remarks, Women are easier to teach to drive than men, because they don't start out thinking they know it all. And I'll bet they are far more likely to stop and ask for directions. So what are 1920s dames doing with their cars? They love driving their way to find some amusement. Often, that can be found outside. In the summertime, we love taking road trips. There isn't a lot of infrastructure in place yet to support large numbers of tourists, so many Americans start auto-camping, cooking meals over campfires and sleeping in tents by the road. We love going to see live sports, like baseball and boxing. And we particularly delight in going swimming. There are plenty of women cooling themselves off in the ocean, which is a real change from years past. As one man recalls, Most of us can remember the time when women were not expected to do any real swimming. They dressed for the beach, not for the water. Satin beach slippers were quite the vogue. Such women as ventured into the waves were usually led by a protecting male hand. Today all this has changed. Most girls prefer the role of mermaid to that of beach flower. They dress suitably for real swimming, and they are not afraid of getting wet, or sunburned, or even dirty. I mean, who wants to be a flower when you could be a mermaid, luring sailors to their deaths? Am I right? While certain sports are still considered off-limits to girls for being too rough or masculine, some are considered ladylike enough. Golf, tennis, and field hockey are all popular. But swimming might be the most popular of all. Lots of our doctors recommend it as a way to calm our nerves, improve our circulation, increase vitality and self-confidence, and, of course, get trim. As one ad for swimsuits from the era states, If you are thin, it will fill you out. If you are stout, it will make you thinner. With the 1920s craze for physical fitness, many gals turn to swimming to keep fit. One of the biggest influences in this sphere is Annette Kellerman. The Australian mermaid first got into swimming because of her rickets, but soon she became a champion swimmer in Europe. She even created a vaudeville underwater ballet diving show, which she brought to the U.S. in 1907. She was on the cover of Variety by 1908, one of the top paid entertainers in the country by 1914, and would go on to star in 14 underwater fantasy-type adventures. One of her great life missions is to teach American women to swim. If more girls would swim and dance and care for athletics instead of rushing into matrimony as the only joy in the world, she wrote, there would be fewer divorces. But that wasn't all the Aussies did for swimming in America. They also made the crawl style super popular. Soon it has evolved into an American variant, popularized by Hawaiian Olympian Duke Kahanamoku, star of the 1912 and 1920 Games. Women weren't allowed to compete in the Olympics until that latter year. 
Team USA sent 288 athletes to Antwerp, and only 14 of them were women. Four were swimmers and two were divers. There were only two individual swimming events they could compete in, the 100-meter freestyle and the 300-meter freestyle. And the whole team competed in the 4x100-meter relay. Despite all that, they won gold for the freestyle relay. Afelda Bliebtre, 18, won gold for the 100-meter and 300-meter freestyle. Three other ladies also won medals, and just 14-year-old Aileen Riggin won gold for diving. Get it, girls? But of course, we swimming ladies have our naysayers, who have a lot to say about our swimwear. While the 1920s wool one-piece might not seem all that scandalous to our modern eyes, at the time, it is considered borderline indecent. We have to remember that it wasn't very long ago that ladies had to swan into the ocean in essentially a full-length dress. The materials used were so cumbersome that if you actually tried to swim in them, especially in the ocean, there was a serious risk of drowning. But as hemlines have crept up in our land-based wear, swimming costumes start to get smaller. The one-piece wool or knit bathing suit creates something of a stir. And so, of course, some pools and beaches, resorts and country clubs start regulating women's swimwear. Watch out for the man bearing a tape measure, who might very well try to stop you so he can ascertain just how far above the knee your suit goes. Are we surprised by any of this? Not really. But many ladies aren't taking this form of body shaming without issue. Take our favorite Australian mermaid, who was told in 1905 that she couldn't perform for the British royal family because her suit was too tight and revealed too much leg. No worries, she said, casually sewing on some black stockings. She gets in trouble again in Boston in 1908 and is arrested for indecent exposure. But she would rather do that than don something that makes no sense to swim in. There is no more reason why you should wear those awful water overcoats, those awkward, unnecessary, lumpy bathing suits, than there is that you should wear lead chains. Heavy bathing suits have caused more deaths by drowning than cramps. Preaching it. One of the places we like to go swimming is on our nearest beach. While there, we might just spend an evening taking in thrills at the local amusement park. In the summer, hundreds of thousands of people visit New York's Coney Island, thanks to the swelling population of Manhattan, an increase of leisure time and spending power, and the creation of the Sea Beach subway line. Our main advantage at Coney Island is in the size of the crowds, the owner wrote proudly in 1922. Often we have half a million people here on a Sunday or a holiday. They have band pavilions, dance halls, vaudeville theaters, and even circus attractions. But the new mechanical amusements are the most exciting ride. There are bumper cars and something called the High Striker, where young men pay to show off their virility by pounding a small platform and sending a ball up a narrow rail to ring a bell. There is the Ferris wheel and the carousel, and of course, the wooden roller coaster. There is even the brand new Cyclone, opened in 1927 with its 86-foot drop. We love places like Coney Island because they're so interactive. Unlike at the movies, where you're mostly watching the action, the amusement park allows us to touch and taste. You can stand with your friends in the barrel of fun, a revolving cylinder that tries to roll you off your feet. You can peruse the avenues of ballyhoo men and try to win prizes from the skee-ball booths. It's all considered a little bit seedy by some, but that's all part of the fun. No surprise, then, that Coney Island is considered a great place for the youth to get some amorous action. 
Its advertisements play it up as a perfect date night spot for adventurous couples. There are penny arcades with machines to measure the ardor of a couple's kiss. Rides like the Canals of Venice and the Tunnel of Love that send their patrons into dark, winding passages. And the Cannon Coaster, which shoots people out of a cannon and onto a slide. It asks its male visitors, Will she throw her arms around your neck and yell? The answer, apparently, is almost definitely yes. The Dewdrop is a parachute ride that lifts women's skirts, much to the delight of onlookers. There's also the Wedding Ring, which uses centrifugal force to cause men and women to literally grab a hold of each other. Exhibitionism and humor are all part of the attraction, and there's plenty of romance to be found. As Edward Tillyou wrote, Cupid is always lurking around the corner to take advantage of the general loosening of emotions that accompanies the excitations of an amusement park. Many a visit there has had its climax in a wedding. Every year, a considerable number of couples coming to Coney are married before they start home again. Yup, people are even getting married at Coney Island. But more on courtship in a moment. A lot of our good times are, for some, greased by the social lubricant that is illegal liquor. We talked at length about alcohol and speakeasies in our coverage of Prohibition, and the anatomy of the 1920s flapper, both of which make great primers for this exploration of our evening play hours. But now, let's dive into some of the activities we're enjoying while out and about. Obviously, there are the moving pictures. One of the lovely things about the movies is that they're pretty accessible. Unlike the cover charges for some of our swankier nightclubs, a ticket for a double feature and a live show cost just 25 cents. We're going to talk in depth about the movies and their stars in another episode, as well as about jazz singers and club culture. So let's hone in on another famously good time, dancing. Social dance parties have been around forever, though most of them were held in ballrooms. These come with a lot of rules, expectations, and restrictions that the 1920s flapper just ain't down with. Men can't talk or dance with a lady unless they're properly introduced to her. All conversation is conducted under a matron's watchful eye. These days, we find such parties too crowded, full of men we'll be obliged to dance with whether we want to or not. We'd rather go to dance halls and cabarets, where we can mix and mingle without parental supervision. There, we can choose our own partners, or even dance alone or with friends. We have privacy in a cabaret. One flapper wrote, We go with people whom we find attractive. What does it matter if an unsavory Irish politician is carrying on a dull and noisy flirtation with the little blonde at the table behind us? We don't have to listen. We are with people whose conversations we find amusing. What does it matter if the flapper and her fetch boyfriend are wriggling beside us as we dance? We like our partner, and the flapper likes hers, and we don't bother each other. These spaces, which range from large ballroom affairs to much smaller, less formal dances, are an inexpensive way to cut loose, and they often go on until the wee hours. Set to the wild tunes of the jazz beats sweeping the nation, they encourage experimentation and dance forms we've never seen before. American ragtime and the pre-war years have already brought us new, much looser styles. Things like the bunny hug, the turkey trot, and the grizzly bear. The 1920s brings in the Charleston, an athletic style of dance involving a brazen amount of leg. The black bottom, the Texas Tommy, which will become the Lindy Hop, and the shimmy. 
there isn't a dance craze we flapper gals aren't keen to try. Many of them don't require a partner, either, which means we can dance them alone. But dance halls and cabarets also offer opportunities to press close with one's partner, or several, and explore the body's curves and planes. Some cities start putting rules in place about what sorts of dancing we're allowed to indulge in. In Cleveland, at the city's dance hall, couples are told they should refrain from flirting, spooning, and rowdy conduct of any kind. And looking into each other's eyes while dancing. Yeah, okay. Good luck enforcing that. Dance contests are also hugely popular, and in an era excited by the newfangled version of the Olympic Games, world records, and testing the limits of the body, dance marathons are popular too. In 1923, dance instructor Alma Cummings helps kick off the craze in a Manhattan ballroom, wearing holes through both her shoes. Girl dances 24 hours in ballroom. An article in the New York Times proclaims of the evening, wins world record, wilting six partners. But the accomplishment is short-lived. Someone breaks her record just three weeks later. There is also a rising phenomenon called the taxi dance hall. These are places where men can pay to dance with a lady, much like one might rent a cab. A gent can use his 10 cents to buy about 90 seconds with a female dancer. These places serve customers who might struggle to get a dance elsewhere. Newly arrived immigrants, men with disabilities, elderly men. In New York City, there are over 100 taxi dance halls by the end of the decade, serving up to 50,000 male patrons a week. We ladies are only likely to go to one if we are, in fact, working. Taxi dance girls are usually unmarried and working class, and often stigmatized as a kind of sex worker. I can think of far more awful ways to make a crust than with a little social dancing. You know, as long as our partner's hands don't stray. Speaking of straying hands, it's time we talk about courtship. Let's imagine we're in the dance hall with our ladies, having ourselves a good old time. By the bar, you see the clutch of gentlemen you came with, your dates. They're the ones who've been buying your drinks. And there, looking fine as hell in a 1920 suit, is our paramour, Tom Hiddleston. He's my date, though, so you're gonna have to find your own. Soon enough, we'll be out on the dance floor, pressing ourselves against our chosen partner in ways our parents most certainly wouldn't approve of. Our minds might also be turning to what might happen later, when we find ourselves alone in his car. A few decades ago, courtship looked very different. It was highly controlled and orchestrated, with chaperone dances and outings that ensured no one got too frisky. Girls received their bows on the family's front porch, all interactions happening under a chaperone's watchful gaze. That's not to say couples couldn't find ways to be alone. As we learned in Season 1's episode on sex in the Civil War era, we know they certainly got up to some risky business. But with cars, or as some call them, the devil's wagon, and more chances at work and disposable income, comes a new kind of freedom for single women. It's much easier to get out from under our parents than it ever was before. As one social commentator writes, The average father does not know, by name or sight, the young man who visits his daughter and who takes her out to places of amusement. This deeply bothers a dad in Muncie, Indiana, who warns his daughter about going out motoring for the evening with a young blade in a rackish car waiting at the curb. 
What on earth do you want me to do? She responds. To sit around home all evening? We 1920s girls aren't just courting like our mothers did. No, now we're dating. The term date first appeared in 1896 in a Chicago paper, but it was more a fad then than a prevalent system. By the 20s, though, it's firmly settled in. Whereas the gals in the Victorian era were often closely watched, without much chance to spend alone time with a suitor before marriage, we are mixing and mingling with eligible bachelors like Tom way more frequently, especially if we've moved to the city, which provides both a new kind of anonymity and a whole lot of avenues for fun. And why shouldn't we enjoy ourselves? After all, more of us are bringing home the bacon than ever. And if we don't have to hand that money over to our families, we have more control over what we spend our hard-earned dollars on. In those cities where women 25 to 35 can control their own purse strings, one contemporary writes, many of them are apt to drift into casual or steady relationship with certain men friends which may or may not end in matrimony. If the First World War taught us anything, it's that perhaps it's better to find Mr. Great for right now than saving all our amorous fun for Mr. Right. And as the courtship system changes, our sexual behavior is evolving with it. Surveys tell us that while only 14% of women born before 1900 got jiggy with a partner before marriage, some 36 to 39% in the 1910s and 20s did. Apparently, we 1920s dames are also twice as likely to experience an orgasm in these encounters than our mothers. I'm gonna raise my bootleg gin to that. Nowhere is this change more evident than on college campuses. With dating entering the college scene, the old rules of conduct start to relax. The ladies are allowed to spend evenings alone with men. She can date a series of them without a lot of social censure. She might even go to a party and indulge in some petting, a new term that encompasses everything from a little light touching to, well, everything short of full-on baby-making. Smoking, dancing like voodoo devotees, dressing decollete, petting and drinking. An Ohio State co-ed gushes. We do these things because we honestly enjoy the attendant physical sensations. The girl with sport in her blood gets by. She kisses the boys, she smokes with them, drinks with them, and why? because the feeling of comradeship is running rampant. Whereas before, being caught doing anything physical with a suitor might have meant being seen as ruined in the eyes of society. We women get to try before we buy. About half of all college-educated ladies will lose their virginity before they marry. Although it must be said that most of them do this with the men they'll go on to hitch their wagons to. And men are growing more relaxed in their attitudes about how much sexual experience is preferable for a lady to bring into the marriage bed. Surveys show that about three-fourths of college-age American men in the 20s say they don't mind marrying a girl who's explored some heavy petting. Social commentators are, of course, concerned by what they see as the youth's relaxing morals. They dub it, Sex O'Clock in America, and sigh that the country's singles have sex too firmly on the brain. To spoon or not to spoon seems to be the burning question with modern young America, one man writes with dismay. Like it or not, dating gives 1920s girls a chance to get to know their suitors before deciding whether they will make good lifelong partners. But in some ways, this actually limits our options, especially for women who'd rather date each other. In the Victorian era, men and women often lived in different spheres, hardly mingling socially. 
There were many female-only spaces, which helped engender deep bonds of affection. Sometimes these bonds were romantic as well. Society was happy for women to hug, kiss, and be affectionate, even if it didn't exactly condone sexual congress between them. Most people didn't think to consider that women might want to do just that. All that said, some half of college-educated women from the 1870s to the 1920s simply refused to marry. This is likely the case for a lot of reasons, but one of them has to be because some prefer to be with women. It was perfectly acceptable for two single gals to live together in what was sometimes called a Boston marriage, though such a union had no real legal standing. Settlement House founder Jane Addams spends her life with partner Mary Rosett Smith, for example. Victorian-era actress Charlotte Cushman rather famously took several female lovers, though she always referred to them as her friends. It wasn't until the turn of the century that we collectively started getting kind of obsessed with categorizing sexuality and passing supposedly scientific judgment. So while we might have more freedom to scuttle off with Tom Hiddleston into a corner, Good luck sneaking away with Kristen Stewart without being noticed. In this era, social scientists have started to consider female homosexuality and the notion of ladies who don't need men as a troubling potential problem. And even for those of us happily dating men, going out on the town isn't all fun and frivolity. It can put us in a precarious situation, one that can easily end in disaster. An important thing to remember when it comes to going out in 1920s America is that it almost always costs us money. And while more single and married women are working than ever, we aren't making nearly as much as our male counterparts. The money we do make, we often have to hand over to our families if we still live with them, while our brother gets, on average, to keep at least half of his paycheck. Daughters are expected to hand it all over for the family's greater good. Even for those of us who live alone, our paychecks are barely covering rent and food, let alone amusement. Unless we're in the upper echelons of society, we don't have as much disposable income as our society would lead us to believe. Female factory workers in 1920s Chicago earn around $22 a week, while their minimum living costs are $20 to $25. That's some pretty anxiety-inducing math. Enter the whole concept of treating. The idea here is that a man who takes a lady out on a date will pay for everything, treating his lady to a night out on the town. For some women, this is the only way they can enjoy such delights on a weekend. As cheap as movies and a trip to Coney Island might be, they're still out of reach for many. If they didn't take me, how could I ever go out? One department store clerk says of her boyfriends. Another waitress puts it more bluntly. If I did not have a man, I could not get along on my wages. It tells you something that girls who frequently go out with boys who treat them are referred to as charity girls. Of course, there are men who love to complain about this system. They say treating is an outsized burden on their wallets and can limit them socially and romantically. The Chicago Tribune publishes an article in 1919 entitled, Man getting $18 a week dares not fall in love. But at least it gives them control. The dangers here are far greater for women because treating comes with certain strings attached. If men are going to pay for a lady's evening, they go in with certain amorous expectations. They might demand a kiss or a pet or even more than that. This sexual barter becomes part of the romantic exchange. 
when a young working girl in New York expresses confusion to her friend about why she can't seem to keep a boyfriend. The friend replies, Don't you know there ain't no feller gonna spend coin on you for nothing? Tom Hiddleston is a gentleman, obviously. He just wants to read me poetry and hang on my every precious word. But for the rest of us, these seeming late-night freedoms have a dark side. Wage inequality means we're bound to find ourselves under pressure to do things with our paramours we might not want to do. And if we do go the limit, we might end up in some pretty hot water. Speaking of, let's talk a bit about contraception. When birth control vigilantes like Margaret Sanger came on the scene in the 1910s, it was considered a radical movement, one spearheaded by women. Their focus was on putting control of reproduction into the hands of those whom it affected most, women. Mostly married women. In excerpts from letters Margaret Sanger received from these women, we can see why they were seeking her help. I am only 26 years old and the mother of five children, one wrote. The last time I had a six months miscarriage and I have been weak ever since. I have to work so hard until I feel like it would kill me to give birth to another. Another letter reads, I don't care to bear any more children for the man I got. He is most all the time drunk and not working and gone for days and nights and leaves me alone most of the time. In 1914, in her journal The Woman Rebel, Sanger suggested that perhaps there were times when one should actively avoid getting pregnant, like in illness or poverty. She didn't say anything about how to keep from getting pregnant. And yet the New York City Postmaster banned the journal because, under the Comstock Law, it supposedly counted as obscene, lewd, and lascivious. Later that year, Sanger coined the term birth control, causing such a stir she had to flee the country. But the 1920s sees this movement transformed into a respectable, even non-radical cause. Surely a good thing. Except that it's been taken over by mostly male doctors who make birth control a medical rather than a feminist issue. And because of the era's interest in eugenics, we see some of them using birth control to fuel racist ideas about controlling America's black population and keeping them from reproducing. At least, birth control is easier to access than it was in our mama's day. So what sorts of contraception are we using? Likely either a condom or a diaphragm. Charles Goodyear invented the vulcanization of rubber way back in 1839, and it wasn't long before manufacturers were making rubber condoms. They were also making douching syringes, diaphragms, and womb veils, a rather whimsical name for what is similar to an IUD. Pharmacies sold all sorts of suppositories that proclaimed they would keep us from getting pregnant, but Anthony Comstock, the anti-vice activist, saw all of these items as a worrying means of separating sex from marriage. In 1873, he successfully lobbied Congress for a bill called the Comstock Act, which outlawed the distribution of any obscene materials. Who got to decide what were obscene? Good old Anthony, of course. That included anything having to do with contraception, which can't be sold across state lines or through the mail. Until the 1890s, most of the states either banned or radically limited contraception. An underground trade sprung up around these rules, run mostly by women and immigrants, some of whom made a killing on the birth control trade. At last, things changed in 1918, when war started making everyone nervous about the spread of venereal disease. 
In a case brought to Judge Frederick Crane's New York Appeals Court, he ruled that contraceptive devices were legal as instruments for the maintenance of the public's health. I mean, we don't want our boys getting syphilis, do we? Suddenly, there was no more need for euphemisms and under-the-counter dealing. Condoms could be found in drugstores, barbershops, newsstands, and gas stations. But here's the thing. This sudden condom boom helped men keep from getting anyone pregnant, but we ladies don't really have an equivalent. The issue with diaphragms, our most effective method, is that we need to see a doctor to get one, which can be both expensive and embarrassing. And they might not even work. Lois Long, journalist and devoted flapper gal, once wrote, We wore wishbone diaphragms that weren't always reliable. There was a doctor who handled abortions for our crowd. She would take a vacation at Christmas time to rest up for the rush after New Year's Eve. Middle-class women certainly have an easier time getting a hold of contraceptives than working-class ones. They can ask their private physicians. Poorer women have to turn to clinics. In 1921, Margaret Sanger establishes the American Birth Control League, the antecedent of the Planned Parent Federation of America. Two years later, she opens the country's first legal birth control clinic. Part of her mission, she says, is to "...elevate sex into another sphere, whereby it may subserve and enhance the possibility of individual and human expression." For her, it's also about our liberation. And while there are those who see clinics as threatening, the law tends to support them. In Chicago in 1924, a judge rules that the health commissioner can't deny a license to a clinic on moral grounds, because doing so was essentially blending church and state. By 1930, there will be 55 birth control clinics in 23 cities across 12 states. The 1920s also see some breakthroughs in our understanding of fertility. In the Victorian era, most doctors and manuals suggested that a woman's most fertile time was around her period, so exactly the opposite of accurate. In the 1920s, scientists in Japan and Austria figure out that women are fertile about halfway through the average menstrual cycle, leading to the introduction of the rhythm method. As for getting an abortion, you're going to have trouble finding a safe option. By 1910, they were totally illegal in every state except an absolute medical emergency, a decision mostly in the hands of male doctors. Abortions are driven underground, which means a rise in unsafe conditions for the women who seek them. In 1930, the Guttmacher Institute says that about 2,700 women will die from them. That's almost one in every five maternal deaths recorded for the year. Despite the increasing availability of birth control and the era's new focus on sexuality, marriage is, for most of us, still the end goal. If I'm going to go the limit with Tom, I won't likely do it unless there's a shiny ring involved. It's totally fine to be a flapper and have some wild times, but eventually many are still keen to settle down and walk down the aisle on average around the age of 21. At least, that's what society expects of her. But now, it's time to drive off into the night with our cuddle cutie, relishing the feeling of the wind in our hair. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you like The Exploress, tell a friend about it. Leave a review wherever you listen, become a patron of the show, or shoot me a message telling me what you love about it. Hearing from you always delights me. Much love to Carly Quinn for her help researching this episode and for everything she does. 
You can find show notes, including a transcript for this episode, a list of my resources, and some cool pictures at my website, theexplorespodcast.com. You can also find me on Instagram at theexplorespodcast. Thank you as always to Mr. Explores for the show's logo, and the following for their vocal stylings. Jess, Lily, Katie, Jessica, Jen, Valerie, Melissa, Blake, Dylan, Janae, and my brother John. Goodness me, give that mermaid a bath.